Well, good afternoon, everyone. Afternoon, thank you. This isn't school, it's all right. Um, could I ask you a big favor? Would you mind moving forward for me? Because some of you are all the way in the back, and you know, later when it gets fiery and heated and debated in grace, we want to be able to see each other's faces as we are. Uh, no, no, I'm joking. No, but if we can make, if we can fill up the gaps, that would be really helpful. That'd be really good. <laughs> Fabulous. Thank you so much. Now, one thing to mention, we are aware that uh, this is cutting into dinner time slightly for some of you, so if you do need to go later, that's fine. But we're going to end the seminar slightly earlier anyway to give you some time for that as well. But we're really glad you came. So, welcome to Debating the Kingdom, part one. So we're going to have a second seminar tomorrow, and today we're looking at how God became a king. You know, when I first became a Christian, one of the first words I read in the Gospel of Mark was, now the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. It, fascinating words, really caught me, and I wanted to explore them. And you know what? Turns out lots of theologians want to do the same as well. And so that's what we're going to be doing over the next two days. Beginning today, we're going to be looking at Tom Wright's book, or N.T. Wright, When God Became King. And then tomorrow, we're going to be looking at Scott McKnight's book, Kingdom Conspiracy. Now, you don't have to have read them in order to be here. That's what these guys are here for. But what we are going to look at is some of the issues and things that come up during and through these books. And we're going to discuss them and bring them out. And we'd love to hear your contributions later in a Q&A. So we have three people on our esteemed panel this afternoon. So let me first introduce, we have Mick Taylor with us today. Now, Mick studied theology at Spurgeon's College, London, and Westminster College in the U.S., and has been involved in church leadership in London, Bracknell, and most recently in Bournemouth, where he oversees the theological training for commissioned churches. We also have Adrian Burks over here. Adrian also studied at Spurgeon's College, where he completed a research master's degree in hermeneutics and advanced New Testament Greek. He has been involved in New Frontiers training for many years and worked with Dave Devonish, overseeing the training and providing for our churches in the Russian-speaking world. Adrian currently leads the community church in Honiton and serves the commission churches in the southwest region. And lastly, but certainly not least, we have Will Losher with us today as well. Now, Will recently, and he deserves a round of applause for this, Will recently completed a PhD in biblical studies in Cambridge, which is quite an achievement, exploring spirit-filled mission in the Book of Acts. Prior to that, Will led a church in Walsall for 20 years and is on the leadership team for the Life in Spirit Conference and the Kinetic Family of Churches. Will is currently part of the leadership team at the Community Church in Honiton. So please give all of these guys a big round of applause for joining us and giving up their time today. So we have a very, very simple structure for us today. Uh, in a moment, Mick will come up and he is going to lead us in a brief synopsis of the book and highlight some of the helpful and unhelpful aspects that might come out from it. Um, then Will and the others will join the discussion and together they'll explore the book further and highlight some of the issues that come up. Um, lastly, we're going to open the floor to every one of you here for a, a wonderful Q&A session where you can explore the questions that little bit further. A little courtesy, if you do have a mobile phone, please do put it on silent or turn it off. That would be really fantastic because we wouldn't want any distractions. But let's invite Mick to the floor and give him a big round of applause. Ah, good afternoon. And um, how many people have heard of Tom Wright? How many people have read at least one of his books? 
Good. How many people have read the particular book we're thinking about? How God Became King. Yeah. Ah, that's good. Good, good. That's it. So most of you won't know if I'm doing this wrong, except the, these two guys will. Thank you. Uh, Tom Wright is a pro prolific writer, high-level scholar, and experienced church uh, leader. Uh, currently, he's professor of New Testament and early Christianity in University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Immediately prior to that, he was Bishop of Durham, and his career has oscillated between academic posts and church positions. Um, he's warm-hearted, and having met him a couple of times, he's a very gracious, uh, warm person. His scholarship is of the very highest level. Um, he's a world-renowned scholar. And for me, his writing is a joy to read. Um, he writes with the passion and eloquence of a preacher. And uh, even in his academic work, sometimes his um, metaphors make you smile because they're uh, mildly amusing. It's of passing interest to know that his first book that was published was written in collaboration with four other Cambridge University students and that book was published by the Banner of Truth. Um, he has developed somewhat in his thinking since then, but his theology still has a recognizable reformed sort of shape um, to it. He writes at three levels. He writes at the highest academic level, so theologians and, and New Testament scholars read his stuff. He writes at very popular level, um, like the every, like everyday person, um, can access it. So if you've seen his New Testament commentaries, the New Testament for everyone, um, I think most people can read them and benefit very highly from them. And then he does a middle level. Um, you can tell if it's an academic work because it says on the spine N.T. Wright. And if it's one of the other levels, it's always Tom Wright. The middle level, where this book comes from, is written for intelligent, thoughtful readers who've thought a little bit about theology and New Testament studies. So the book we're looking at is um, How God Became King. Uh, I would suggest that he's writing to quite a diverse sort of audience. So not just to people like us, but we are also part of his audience. So he's writing to people in churches where they use creeds a lot, and he has quite a lot of discussion about creeds. Um, he's writing to people who have a very liberal theology, and he's writing to evangelical Bible-believing Christians. He um, addresses people of the political right and the political left, and he critiques us all. But I think his intention is to draw all of us out of our respective foxholes and try and help us to learn from each other. Um, even in his more accessible, most accessible writings, his thought is multi-layered and is worth rereading and pondering rather than just reading it once. So that's, that's the introduction to Tom. And, I, and now and again, I'll call him Tom or I'll call him Tom Wright. It, I've, I've shaken his hands. I have sat next to him at a meal table. But we're not friends, although it would be great to be his friend. The essential argument of this book, How God Became King, is that we have misread the Gospels. He says, we have forgotten what the four Gospels are about. The Gospels, for him, are about Israel's God becoming king of this world in and through the work of Jesus of Nazareth. 
through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Tom writes, most Christians have failed to glimpse this, let alone preach it. We are insufficiently biblical. That's typical of Tom's provocative style. Most Christians haven't got this right for 2,000 years, and in the margin of my book I put, but thank goodness Tom has arrived to sort us all out. Um, but more modestly, he writes, we can learn to read the Gospels better. And I think that's right. Tom sees a number of factors about the mis what have contributed to, to misreading the Gospels. Um, some of those reasons are stated explicitly in the book and some of them are implied. But let me list, uh, I think, five. He, he shows us and reminds us that the early creeds of the church did not focus on the life of Jesus. So you jump from his birth, his incarnation, and to, to his death. So the doctrines of uh, um, incarnation and atonement are what the creeds, like the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, tend to talk about. They don't talk much about the bits in between. So the beginning and the end of the Gospels. Um, and they did that because those questions were the questions under attack. That's where people were expressing error. They had to talk about those things. But what became a defense of core doctrine almost became the syllabus or the way you read the Gospels. You read the Gospels just to prove those points, not to understand the significance of the life of Jesus. He says in one place something like this. But the way people um, understand the Gospels, Jesus could have been born of a virgin and then immediately died on the cross, although doing that to a baby would be even more cruel. But you know what I mean? You could jump the story and then just go to the end chapters. So the creeds have been used to short-circuit the Gospel message of one reason. Another factor is the whole revolution in thinking and culture of the Enlightenment, which... Uh, at one level, wanted to keep God out of real life. Uh, wanted to separate religion into a separate box and poli from politics, culture, society. In the Enlightenment thinking, where reason is king, faith and reason are placed in completely different boxes. And certainly religion is locked in a, its own particular box. Third factor is that the church very early on in its history lost touch with its Jewish roots um, so we didn't think like the Jews of Jesus's day the church lost how to do that and uh, forgot really how to read the Old Testament in its most rich way third factor a couple of others from the Reformation people have tended to read the Gospels to try and prove the doctrine uh, the themes of Paul and especially justification by faith and then um, the result of all those reasons, or they're the reasons why we don't read the Gospels right, according to him, is that we've ended up with a very narrow understanding of what the good news is. Either it is the way we get to heaven when we die, or it's primarily about social change, and we should be social revolutionaries or agents of change in our society. And nor have we seen how the death of Jesus relates to him preaching the kingdom. Um, and so means we have a very inadequate uh, understanding or appreciation of his earthly ministry. He says another reason we don't want to hear the impact of his earthly ministry 
is that for us in the West to really get hold of that would be rather uncomfortable because it would radically, radically challenge our comfortable lifestyles. So, how are we supposed to read the Gospels? How can Tom try to help us? Well, he uses the image of quadraphonic speakers, four speakers. And he says there are four major themes running through the Gospel and they need, like any quadraphonic system, to be tuned and balanced accurately so that we might understand the gospel in all their fullness. And here are the four themes. That the story of Jesus is the climax of the story of Israel. The story of Jesus is the story of Israel's God. The story of Jesus is the story of the launching of God's renewed people and the story of Jesus is the story of the clash of kingdoms. And uh, so they're all like different speakers. And he says two of them have been put up far too loud. One of them's rather soft and one of them's been turned off and packed up and taken away. And I'll explain that as we go uh, forward a bit more. So here are the four speakers. First one. Seeing the Gospels as telling the climax of the story of Israel, and that's the speaker he thinks has been turned right down. And I think while gr gradually this is becoming less valid, it's still substantially correct for many Christians. Christians who view that the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God had a plan but it ran into the sands, it ran into a cul-de-sac, and the New Testament is like God retreating from that plan and finding a new way around. And he says, no, that's not what the New Testament says. The New Testament is saying, the end of the Old Testament ends with all sorts of questions, unresolved tensions, lots of promises of hope that haven't been fulfilled, but although it looked like a cul-de-sac, there was a surprising extraordinary way that God was going to fulfill all his promises in and through Jesus. So Jesus is the one who crushes the serpent's head. He is the Davidic king. He is the one that brings a new creation. And as he said to the disciples on the Emmaus Road, all of the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. It wasn't a surprise plan. It was always intended. The story of Jesus is how God climaxes the history and story of Israel. But secondly, the second speaker, which he thinks has been turned up way too loud, is the story of Israel's God. So the Gospels are written, uh, are read, and we find evidence that Jesus is God. Now, he's not saying that's wrong. He says that's just not the primary purpose of the Gospels. Because it's not just about Jesus is God. It's telling us about the God that Jesus is, and about what that God was doing and is doing in our world. And what happened in Jesus is God came to take up his sovereign reign over Israel and the world. And um, Wright has some very interesting insights. And one helpful way for me he comes in here. He talks about... The, the Jews before Jesus came did think that God in some sense was the ruler of the world. He was the Lord of creation. And yet they longed for God to become king. So he is king, but they want him to be king. 
And that's a tension in the sense that Christians understand. So how do you express that? Well, he puts it like this. Jesus came to bring about God's rule on earth as it is in heaven. God rules the whole of history, but his rule on earth is not exactly the way it is in heaven. In heaven, it's perfect. There's no rebellion in heaven. There's no sin in heaven. But Jesus came that his rule might be here on earth. So I think that was a very helpful way of uh, putting it. Uh, and he has in this, uh, in this section, he has some useful things about how you see that God, Jesus is God and how the Gospels prove that, rather than in addition to some of the standard arguments that we might use. But you, you need to read the book for those. Speaker 1, the climax of Israel's history has been turned way down. Jesus, the, Jesus, Jesus is the story of Israel's God. He says that's been turned up too loud. Second one's been turned up um, too loud too. That the story of Jesus is about God's renewed people. Um, he he says something very provocative here. He says this: the first bit is useful and helpful. The Gospels are not just written about history. Not just about what happened. They are foundational documents. They tell us stories, not just about what happened, but they tell us stories about what happened to tell us who we are and give direction to our lives. Here's a provocative says, thing he says. He says, as such, in the best sense, they are myths. And I'll leave that with you to think about, and you can ask the question if you want. But in, it's like, why do you have to put it that way, Tom? Um, Tom said... This speaker, the story of God's renewed people, is supposed to fit in with the Old Testament, the history of God, Israel, the history of Israel. But because we've turned that one way down, we don't blend those two thoughts together. Because the history of Israel finds its climax in Jesus, but that's not the end. It, it, the climax of him coming is the launch pad of God renewing his people. And so the church is not replacing Israel, but the church is the renewed Israel, the fulfilled Israel, says, says Tom. I think that's right. And again, he has some really interesting insights on bits of scripture. Here's a, just a little one. He points out that on the road to Emmaus, that story, um, in that story, there's a point at which the two disciples, it says their eyes are opened, and they realize it's Jesus. Their eyes are open. And then he points out that in the Garden of Eden, the temptation comes to Adam, to Eve, to eat the fruit because then your eyes will be opened. Your eyes are not opened by eating the tree of, the, uh, of good, knowledge of good and evil. Your eyes get opened in the presence of the risen Jesus. That's, I just find that really attractive and something t interesting to see. Right. You've got three speakers. Got those in your head? Fourth speaker, this is the one he thinks has been turned off, packed up, and put in a cupboard. The fourth speaker is the story of the Gospels is the story of the clash of kingdoms. It's about spiritual warfare. And he thinks that's often totally missing because he sees this primarily as express in the conflict between political powers 
and what God's doing in the world. Now, he acknowledges behind that are spiritual forces of darkness. But his primary focus is on God's kingdom and how the Roman Empire impacted with that. And in support of that, besides other things, he turns to Luke 22, 53, where it says, Jesus is being arrested, and he says to the people arresting him, When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. So behind the soldiers arresting him are not just political forces, but spiritual evil forces. The clash with Rome and the Jewish authorities is a specific expression of a repeated pattern throughout history where God's rule has been opposed by evil forces as God's people have known opposition and oppression from other nations and wicked rulers. And Jesus calls himself the son of man, and that's not really a reference to his humanity. It's a vowed way of Jesus telling people that he is the fulfillment of Daniel 7, where one, like a son of man, receives the kingdom from the Father and the beginning of the kingdom of God, which will destroy all earthly powers the kingdom of God is not the expectation is not that we are whisked away from this world but it's for this world to be renewed under the sovereign reign of God through the Messiah Jesus because the curse has been lifted and the powers have been vanquished and there's and some interesting things, he talks about the classic Rome being shown in the, um, the question about paying taxes to Caesar, pay to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and get then to God the things that are God. And then he takes us to a, book in, uh, a quote in the book of Maccabees, 1 Maccabees 2.68, I'm sure you've all read it and know it by heart. But Maccabees is the story of the Jewish revolt against the Greek powers about 167 years before Jesus was born. And in that revolt, you get a quote from one of the revolutionaries. Pay back to the Gentiles in full and obey the commands of the Torah, which is very parallel to pay to Caesar the things that are Caesar and the things to God. And Tom Wright just says, when it says pay the Gentiles in full, it's not talking about money. It's talking about daggers. Not that Jesus was a violent revolutionary, but the whole discussion is highly, highly political. And certainly, in evangelical, Bible-believing circles, the political dimension of the Gospels and its impact for day has often been turned off and ignored. The very title Messiah had political connotations. Jesus was now to a cross by the Romans because they thought he was a revolutionary. And sometimes we miss that. So they're the four speakers. The story of Jesus is the story of uh, the climax of the history of Israel. It's the story of Israel's God. It's the story, well, I'm going backwards, it's the clash of the kingdoms, and there's a third one, and it's the story of what? Hold on. Thank you. Someone is listening. The renew- God's renewed people. I didn't know that. So, have you got that? I know that's quite a lot to get, um, but the book is about 250 pages, and that's an, a quick summary. In summary, then, 
if we're going to get the Gospels right, we need to know all of those themes and keep them in balance and not just have two blaring at us and really miss and ignore the other two. And he says, if we get that right, you solve a problem that often puzzles Christians like that, is how does the gospel of the kingdom relate to the cross? I know I was confused, even as a theological student, that we preach the gospel on a Sunday, and Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom, and they sounded at times quite different. So how does the Sermon on the Mount connect to the gospel preaching how do those things together go together and and tom wright says if you understand these four themes it solves that it brings them together because so kingdom and cross become one truth and not two truths and he traces that through the four speakers he says um is the climax of in israel's story there's a theme of the suffering servant the righteous sufferer who through their their suffering brings blessing. The best expression of that is Isaiah 53. And there you, but Isaiah 53 is surrounded by prophecies about the coming kingdom. Kingdom comes through the cross. That story tells that. Israel's God had come, had promised to come as a shepherd, especially Ezekiel 34. He would shepherd his people. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. When he says that, it's a reflection back to Ezekiel 34. I am the good shepherd, but the good shepherd comes to lay his life down for the sheep. The Gospels are a foundational document, not just about what Jesus did. Jesus suffered and died, but his disciples are called to follow the way of suffering. Jesus suffered and died to establish the kingdom his followers suffer to implement the kingdom. I think that's very powerful in a culture where we think very often being a Jesus, being a follower of Jesus will make life easy. You know, you come up to pick up your cross and suffer. And the clash between the kingdoms of God and the kingdoms of man, and that clash is won by Jesus by his death. By his death, he disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public example of all of them, just triumphing over them in him. The cross and the kingdom come together. So, quick evaluation. You still with me? No one's left? Or they did when I was looking at my notes. Um, some positives. I've got lots of positives about this um, and some concerns. I think his main point that the Gospels tell about how God's kingdom will come through Christ is proven. I have a question about that, if that's the main thing or the only main thing it's saying, but I think that is proven. Um, I think also that, that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God is not some ethereal existence floating on the clouds playing hearts, but it's about this world transformed under the risen Messiah, ascended Jesus. That's our hope, and Tom Wright is very strong on that. That the good news about Jesus is not just about forgiveness of sin, but about radical whole life discipleship, which focuses now on bringing God's order to the world, which starts with us being in right order and others being in right order with him. His way of integrating personal salvation and social engagement, so that social engagement is not just a secondary thing, 
incidental or additional that a few Christians do, but is the very heart of what the church is about, is very helpful. That he shows the connectedness between cross and kingdom. Uh, He integrates saviour and lord, and belief and discipleship. All of that, I think, is very helpful, and some theologies don't help us do that. And his approach makes holistic mission the inevitable consequence of following Jesus. And I love the biblical theological approach that connects all sorts of themes, Old Testament and New Testament, together in so many ways. But I do have three major concerns uh, besides some incidental bits of details of argument. And to raise them, it sounds a bit presumptuous. This is a man who, in his quiet times, regularly reads a chapter of the New Testament in Greek, then a chapter of the Old Testament in Hebrew, and then um, oscillates between reading a psalm each day in uh, Greek or Hebrew. So he might know a bit more than I do. Um, And also, I've read a lot of his works, and sometimes things that really puzzled me and I thought I disagreed with, after reflection and thinking further, I came to think, I think there's something in this. But yet, I still have some concerns. We're nearly there. I appreciate how Tom Wright integrates the personal and the social aspects of the gospel. So when he writes, justification is God's advance, God in advance, putting men and women right against the day when he will put all things right and thereby constituting the justified people as key agents in the latter project. That sounds a bit complicated. But justification is putting us right in advance of the final day when he puts everything right. And in putting us right, he wants us to be agents of putting things right in this world. I think that's great. That's helpful. He also says, more simply, those who are put right with God through the cross are to be putting right people for this world. So we're supposed to be helping bring God's order now. That's helpful. What I find concerning and very unhelpful, he says this, and this is the primary, the primary application of the cross is not in abstract preaching about how to have your sins forgiven or how to go to heaven, But the primary application is found in an agenda in which forgiven people are put to work addressing the evils of the world in the light of the victory of Calvary. That is a consequence, I think is true, that it is the primary application. I am concerned about where that leads. Um, I think He's trying to, for me, in trying to redress uh, an imbalance, I think he might have strayed into unhelpful overstatement and might be worse than unhelpful. It might be dangerous. Even more concerned when he writes this. The story of Israel was not to be the, is not, was not to be the story of how God was going to deal, sorry, erase that last sentence. The story of Israel was to be the story of how God was going to deal with evil. How he would draw it, evil, into one place, allowing it to do its worst at that point. And he himself would go to that place and would become Israel in person in order that evil might do its worst to him and so spend its force once and for all. I think that way of talking about the work of Christ's 
takes the focus off where the Bible puts the focus. The Bible puts the focus that the trouble in the world is that we rebelled in the beginning and continue to rebel, and the cross comes to deal with that. It does mean there was evil in the garden, and the serpent will be thrown eventually into a lake of fire and internal damnation. But this way of putting it leaves us as like prisoners of war and not enemies of God. And I think the Bible says we were enemies of God and then God has changed us and rescued us. And if we're not the focus, I think it can let us off the hook and soften the challenge of the gospel. Um, and this is, seems to be Tom Wright's dominant way of talking about the work of Christ. Um, which raises the wider question of contextualization, which is, in trying to make the gospel more meaningful to our culture, there is a danger of diluting what the gospel is and making it non-gospel. Whilst the sovereign... Yeah, that's enough there. Uh, the final question I have. Uh, there's a more general thing that this whole book raised for me. This whole thing about, we've re misread the gospels, and now I'm going to tell you how to read the gospels. Um, lots of books do that. The danger is when people do that is you start to undermine any confidence that anyone can read the Gospels right. So if, that, if Tom Wright thinks we've misread the Gospel and then tomorrow we'll find out that Scott McKnight thinks some people have misread the Gospel, then who knows? You know, it's like all these fads of diets and then the Daily Mail come up again. You know, you're supposed to eat butter. No, you're not supposed to eat butter. You're supposed to drink milk. No, you're not supposed to drink milk. In the end, some people just give up. And some people go off on faddish diets. And I think there's a danger, unless you're careful, in how you express things, you just take confidence out. whole world has misread the Bible until me. And tomorrow, someone will come along and say, everyone's misread the Bible, including Tom, but me. You get confused. But having said that, I'm just going to finish, and then we're going to debate. Um, I highly recommend this book to anyone who's a preacher or teacher. I think it's hugely stimulating. It gives you lots of insights, even if you came to disagree with its main thesis. And here's a final quote that shows Wright has the heart and the gift of a preacher. We have at last, says Tom, belittled the cross. Imagining it merely as a mechanism for getting us off the hook of our own petty naughtiness, or as an example of some general benevolent truth, it is much more. The cross is the moment when the story of Israel reaches its climax, the moment when at last the watchmen on Jerusalem's wall see their God coming in his kingdom. It's the moment when the people of God are renewed, so to be at last the royal priesthood who will take over the, the world, not with the love of power but with the power of love it's the moment when the kingdom of god comes and overcomes the kingdoms of the world it is the moment when the great door locked and barred since our dis first disobedience swings open suddenly to reveal not just the garden once more to our delight, but the coming city, the garden city that God has always planned and is now inviting us to go through the door and build with him.
the dark power that stood in the way of this kingdom vision has been defeated, overthrown, rendered null and void. Its legions will still make a lot of noise and cause a lot of grief, but the ultimate victory is assured. This is the vision the evangelists offer us as they bring together the kingdom and the cross. Take a deep breath. Poke the person awake next to you. And uh, we're going to gather as a panel at the front here. So the idea is that we three are going to debate, which might mean we three disagree on some points. And um, are they, they are, they're on. Am I on? Yeah. Will's here, especially besides his theological. Uh, it's his physical strength. He might be able to you know, part at Adrian and I if we really get into trouble. You, <laughs> you and me keep it apart. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I, I'll put this guys, down. is there any... I, I, start, I put in my notes <coughs> questions for these guys or things we might discuss, but feel free to do other things. But I just wonder if there was anything you wanted me to clarify or anything you wanted to add or bring helpful balance to... Um, in this book, because this book is full of lots of insights, so uh, to try and get the essence, uh, even in that rather rapid 25 or whatever minutes, it was difficult. So, Will, Adrian. I'll start then. Okay, so I, I think the book's really helpful in lots of ways. I am not quite the fan <laughs> that Mick is of our esteemed bishop. Um, he... He is a lovely guy. I've had, in fact, I might be in the same lunch. Were we at the same lunch? He's, he's a lovely guy. I struggled with this book. I think um, maybe I'm, you know, you said it's a book for intelligent, thoughtful readers. Perhaps, <laughs> perhaps I'm just not. I but say I, no more. Um, <laughs> I, find, I find he writes, I found he writes in a very slippery way so that I'm struggling sometimes to think, so you know you said the more you read, the more you understand. The more I read, I think, no, I think I understand even less now. Uh, so I find him quite confusing. I think, I think he does overstate things, and perhaps, perhaps he's a bit tongue-in-cheek, but actually the way he says things, let me just read off the back of the book, doesn't sound tongue-in-cheek. So on the back of the book, it has been slowly dawning, dawning on me over many years. There's a fundamental problem deep in the heart of the Christian faith and practices I have known them. We have all forgotten what the Gospels are all about. That doesn't sound tongue-in-cheek. That sounds very straightforward. We've forgotten, and that gives me a problem. So I think at a, just a broad philosophical level, I am personally suspicious of anyone who says, I've got a discovery, and the church has had it wrong for 2,000 years. Uh, this sounds it, like what the Pope said to Martin Luther. <coughs> yes, and that's, that's pretty true. And in the end, Martin Luther and probably Tom Wright would say, here I stand, here I, stand. I can do no other. But, but I, I think, I wouldn't want to dismiss everything. I just think I do come at approaches like that, probably with, with suspicion, I think, firstly. I think so when he says we, uh, we have forgotten what the Gospels are all about, I, I think... Is that true? Have we really forgotten? Has the church... I'm not saying nobody has ever done that. I'm just saying, look at the broad sweep of the church. Have we really forgotten what the Gospels are all about? I'm just not convinced that's no, true. I, I, I agree. It's written, it, it, if you're yeah. being um, 
generous to him. He's being provocative for the sake of getting a stimulus rather than us going, those people have got it wrong. He, he hits everybody, liberals, evangelicals, Catholics, Protestants, yeah. right wing, left wing. He just slaps us all. And it's like, wait a minute. And yeah. But that's unhelpful because I think we live in an age which I think is often very superior and looks back on previous ages yeah. as if they were a bit dim, but now, with all the blessings of education, we really understand. Yeah, so I, I, just, I, I just think that approach for me, I don't find, I don't find it helpful, and I don't find it convincing. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think there's, a, there's loads in the book that you can um, take up and be really inspired by, and you can follow it, and you can pursue it. My, my difficulty with the book, uh, beyond that, is where it, tries to land I'm not sure he doesn't seem as far as I can get hold of anyway and I've read it several times it's difficult to know where he's really landing what um, in practical outcome what does that kingdom then really look like how does the cross shape that kingdom um, what kind of people are being produced by that kingdom I, I can't get hold of that that so I find that then it leaves me thinking well it's nothing I desperately disagree with, but then what are we landing on? Where, where are we going? What, what it, does it tell us what the kingdom is? Does it answer that question? Does it, does it show us how the cross leads to the kingdom? I, I struggled to get that out of the book. So and I wanted those answers, because yes. I, so I wanted to land somewhere. Can I to, to take it back a little bit then? You, you say you're not sure you agree with much of what he says. So yeah, I find it good and persuasive and helpful, but not... Yeah. I'm not sure where it's going. Yeah, so I would, I would say there's lots of helpful stuff in it. I think the reflections, the Old Testament context, I think those kind of things are really helpful. I, I, um, but if you're saying you're happy with generally what he says, are you saying you are generally happy that the Gospels are about mm -hmm. Jesus establishing his kingdom and, and not a primarily about the atonement? Is that, would you say that? No, I wouldn't. I would, and I'm not sure Tom. You see, that's where it gets difficult because I'm not sure Tom Wright's saying that either. Really, yeah. though, he's he kind of wants his cake and eat it, doesn't he? Really, he wants to say we haven't got the primary reason, but he doesn't want to jettison the atonement and salvation. My difficulty is, does not the atonement and salvation is that not the doorway into the kingdom? Therefore, it is the primary thing of the kingdom isn't it because without it you're not in the kingdom so yeah. you're left that's where are you left I, I mean for me i i think details are, are difficult with tom right in, in terms of what it means but i think at the very least it means is that those who put atonement theology is so important like we do and mm -hmm. i think that's biblically and right cannot divorce that from being in, involved in socially and culturally in in our world to bring something of God's order. Mm -hmm. And he is saying to liberal, more liberal people who see Jesus as an example of doing good, he's saying, you can't, that is n not all of it. You, unless you have the cross in there as part of your message and people being put right. Um, so I think he's trying to slap both sides, uh, but also trying to win both sides. So that's <laughs> where well, I agree. Sometimes his imagery is less precise simply because he's trying to be a bit. He has an overriding ecumenical agenda. He's trying to bring every camp to the table to talk to each other, is, is my view. So I, I think, well, maybe it's another case of him overstating it, but I think he does 
sideline might be too strong, but I think he's certainly trying to dethrone the atonement as a main thing in the Gospels. Mm. I think he's not saying it's not a thing in the Gospels, but I think he is trying to say God becoming king is the main thing, and somehow the atonement is subordinate to that. But, but he would say you can't get that kingdom without Jesus dying on the cross, and in dying on the cross, he, he, he's doing something not just about individuals, he's doing something for the whole of creation. Now, I think I agree that some of that can fudge things, but I think that picture's right, and I think often uh, in evangelical churches, we've, we've so focused on what it means to individuals, we didn't realize that the cross was also about restoring the whole of the cosmos and add implications for today. Yeah, I just don't see that in, in, a, in for example, in the, in the Pauline epistles. So I think, I think the, the emphasis that Tom Wright gives, in the, supposedly, in the Gospels, if you read the epistles, I just think you don't see that. I'm not saying not at all. No, so the, not as a prime Christus thing, Victor. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 15, first, these things are of first importance, that Christ died yes. for our sins. And, and, and so, in one sense, his dismissal of the creeds, well, actually, he could be dismissing the Pauline epistles in the same sweep because he's saying these things are of first importance. Christ died for our sins and, and uh, was buried and rose again. And, and I think, well, hang on a minute. Tom Wright, you've dismissed that. Well, I don't think he's dismissed the resurrection. No, no, he's I'm spent, not, spent no, 900 as pages of, what on as, academic work proving it. first importance. If those things are of first importance, Tom Wright is saying, well, according to the no, gospel, they're not. Uh, no, he was saying why the gospels were written. He would say, firstly, they're written to Christians. So that they know that bit. It's the agenda of the gospels, not of the gospel, but of these pieces of literature. That, now, I, I agree. His, the danger is, it, and I had my concerns, is like how you talk about salvation. I think you're, if you're not careful, you, he moves it to a more social agenda, which I think often is when you're trying to over... It's one of the things I keep thinking about. When you're trying to correct an overemphasis some way, how do you correct an overemphasis by and not end up overemphasizing in the opposite direction? So I think he... Ha- for me, that's my concern of what he's done. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah uh, I have a question about his um, the clash of the kingdom with Rome. Yeah. And he, he uses um, the scripture he uses, um, which you quoted, didn't you? Um, which is the one um, which is often quoted. Um, this is your hour in the power of darkness. Yeah. It's actually a statement to the Jewish people anyway. So it feels like he's trying to draw all the evidence he can to make this a political clash, when actually I, I would think there's a case for saying that it's a spiritual clash, which is something yeah. different. It may involve political, but that's not its primary clash. Its primary clash is with the powers of darkness, which express themselves through the Jewish people as well as Rome. Or yeah, and he, he would say Rome and wicked authorities. So that would be true. And I... Yeah, again, I, wonder no, I, why he, I wonder why he wants to do that. Is that part of him seeing the kingdom as then impacting wider than the yeah. salvation? Is that why, so, that's so why underli- he underlines that wherever... And I, I agree. I think I'm not sure every ordinary Christian or Jewish person is thinking exactly the same way because they're thinking about where do I get food from and how do I look after my little boy? You know, that... that 
I think sometimes he brings things that we have ignored that are in the background yeah. and brought them right in the front and in the centre, uh, but he's then danger of obscuring what really is in the centre, which is Adrian's point. So how, how political, speaking a bit more broadly then, how, how political do you think Jesus was being? Because obviously what, what Tom Wright is saying is actually a lot of things that Jesus was doing are very political, and I, I think... I'm, I'm not sure if I'm convinced by that. I th I'm not saying there's nothing political, because obviously there's no. clearly... It seems almost to, to me that Jesus and the early church were, um, were passive, subversive. Oh, and I think he would, he, he would, I think he would agree with that. And he would say, well, in our categories of that's political and that's religious just doesn't work in their days. It's like us going, oh, the Old Testament law, you can divide into civil and moral and, you know, cult... Cultic, that, 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 that's a division that doesn't work. And the, the idea of something could be purely political and purely religious, especially in the Greek, uh, in the Jewish life, everything is bundled together. But, you know, the Messiah was predicted that he would be the ruler of the world and the Jewish people. Well, that's hugely political in, in, in their context. But it's, yeah, it's trying to, I think it's about trying to get us to think that that's part of our discipleship being politically engaged. He's not saying which way. He's not saying it's a party political thing. But engagement in those issues is part of being a disciple of Jesus and it's part of the consequence of that. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Although, although I think, I, I don't know. He, so, for example, I think he blurs the individual responsibility and governmental responsibility so that in the book he talks about how pacifism is the, is the way of the of God's kingdom and so on and and I think well I, yes at a personal level I would say that's true but at a governmental level so for example I can't remember the quote but something like you don't push evil we've we've ne haven't no. Christians haven't yeah. learned that you don't push evil bombs back by and bombs bullets. and bullets and I think well hang on a minute if you were in the second world war or at the end of the second world war and thinking hang on what we should have really done is is be all been pacifists. I just think. Well, I don't agree with the. I, see what but that's so one thing. But, that, but even to say a non, you might disagree with the way he applies the politics. But to an, a non-pacifist stance as a Christian is a political statement as much as being a pacifist. They're not. You can't take that decision out of the political arena. It is a, it is a political decision. Either I support government going to war, or I don't. But both of those are political. Now I think. The church has always had a problem with war because we quickly defend our government, whatever government it is, and baptise it as Christian and right, where I would suggest that many of our wars, as Brits, if not most of them, have been mm, more, you know, more on the side of unjust than just. Now, I think we've got some good examples, but we've got some <laughs> terrible examples, but we don't usually teach them in our, to our kids. Um, um, yeah. I don't know where we go there. Uh, Will, get yeah. move us on, do something okay. else, and then we are straight open to these yeah, we folk. Will. But I, I think I'd like, he, he sort of land, he does try and land, but doesn't develop it, because he does say repeatedly that the kingdom is accomplished by the cross. Then he says that the heart of that is saving souls. Yes. And it feels like then he doesn't, he doesn't then develop a kingdom expression or what that means practically which is where I what I want to get yeah, to yeah. so I want I want theology to go somewhere I don't want it to just leave us 
hanging up there. I, I want to know, okay then, does that mean at the heart of an expressed kingdom, whatever we do, there has to be at the heart of it the cross and saving souls? Yeah. That feels like what he's saying, but he doesn't get there. No, I agree. I so agree. That, so that's yeah. where I want to discuss, because yeah. often our discussion is what is the kingdom, isn't it? And how does that look and what, does we, what do we mean by it? But yeah. Okay, we're going to wind this bit up. Um, I would like to point out however much I've fat, I like of Tom's work, I don't think it's the inspired text, uh, Adrian, uh, <laughs> or agree with all of his political stances. Um, but uh, anyone want to, this is not just for questions, you might want to throw in a comment and you know, put us right, especially Adrian. Um, uh, but, um, Chap at the back was first. Yeah. When you're in conversation, when you're having yeah, your coffee with somebody and they say, what is the gospel? Um, you can't work around the four speakers and um, uh, make that sort of thing. What would you say? What is, what is the gospel? Can I just point out that the question is it's two-faced. These four speakers are talking about the gospels, the four books. Okay, And the, when we talk about the gospel, we say, what do you say to a non-Christian? That's usually what we what we mean. But having clarified the question, I'm going to hand over to my esteemed colleagues. <laughs> I mean, I think I, I would explain it in the way that many of us would explain it in terms of a sacrifice for sins forgiven. I think to, to connect it in with what Tom Wright is saying, he is he's very much wanting to see what Jesus did in the light of the Old Testament. And of course, sacrifice for sins forgiven is, is very simple. Um, so, so I guess I would explain it in, in the kind of terms many of us would if it's brief. I think what you want to do, though, is, a bit, is, is obviously the implications of that. And this is where we come up with phrase, helpful phrases, but Lord and Savior. Because I think what he's saying is, yes, Jesus died for your sins, but also that you might receive him as king. And what does living under his kingship look like? Um, so, so under Adam... God established himself as king in the garden, but Adam rebelled against, and Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And, and so God thought, I'm, with Israel, I'm going to establish my kingship. And then Israel rebelled against God's kingship. And so in Christ, God has established him as king, and the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end. So, so I think that, and I think that's why, as much as I dislike the title, How God Became King, because that was misleading, I think his point is, Jesus has come as a king, will you receive him as a king? But clearly, atonement has to be a part of that, or his big king isn't good news. So, right. gone. My coffee's nearly gone. No, it's cold, okay. Yes. If I had 30 seconds, that's what you said, didn't you? Having prayed quickly, I would bring the aspect of the gospel that the Holy Spirit gave me to give to that person. So it might be different, but essentially it would bring them to Jesus, who alone can sort out whatever, and their sins particularly. So I would yeah, um, speak, I, speak the aspect of the gospel the Holy Spirit gave me at that moment. Yeah, I think that's a really good answer. I'm, I think I would go something like, the world is in a mess, Jesus came to sort out the mess in the world, but the reason the world's in a mess is that we're all in a mess. Do you want Jesus? Jesus has done something to sort out the mess in your life. 
and then see where the conversation went. Um, over here, and then we'll go over there. going to try and summarize this <laughs> without the great pronunciation of the, the Hebrew. Of, um, but let me try and summarize it, and then you can tell me if I've got it. And if I haven't got it right, I'll give you the mic. Um, um, Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, often, it, it, Jesus is a type of Joseph, son of Joseph, and he's the son of David. And the suffering servant really picks up Jesus as a, a type of Joseph. He suffered in prison, then given position of acclaim. And the question is about, have, um, in the book, does he pick up being the son of David, which has a more kingdom emphasis? I think if you read the book, you would think that that was his prime concern. And if he does anything, he downplays the son of Joseph, although he mentions the suffering. Yeah. Um, there was a question or comment over here. And of course, um, part of that is because Jesus can't easily talk about his death. I mean, he does, but he does that towards the, uh, well, a turning point in his ministry. Um, he's describing the, the, li the life of the kingdom often that he's bringing. He's bringing around a whole new world, a new way of living. Um, but he points to his death as a way to that. And, um, and when, you, when you examine the gospel preaching in Acts, we're in that situation. We're off, after the giving of the Spirit and after Christ has died and ascended. Um, so they're more a model of the preaching of the gospel. And Jesus is preaching. He's preaching in advance of some of the things that are the heart of the gospel. As Paul says, as Adrian said, you know, first importance that Christ died for our sins and was buried and was raised. Well, Jesus can't talk about that very much. Because people miss, you know, even his closest disciples misunderstand that. But he himself would say the reason why the cave was taboo, yeah. or some of the things that I think were suggested to Tom might be talking about, yeah. which is to heal the sick, broken hearted, set the captives free. That was how he saw 
Yeah, I, I, yes. If, if our preaching, it's again about the confusion about what we're talking about when we're talking about the Gospels. Are we talking about the Gospels, the four narratives, or are we talking about the, the message we preach to non-Christians? But if our preaching to non-Christians doesn't in the end draw them into a life where we try to fulfill as the body of Christ, the ministry of Jesus, then, we're, then we've, there's something short-circuited. And that's what Luke does at the beginning of Acts 1, all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. And he's saying, and this is what Jesus continues to do and teach through his body, the church. So I think we agree. Yeah. Is there anything, if you... I, I, I don't know if I do. <laughs> no, nor me. No. Because no, I, think, I, think the, I think the Gospels, <laughs> the four Gospels are through and through have atonement as a foundation from the beginning to the end. So the lamp, John the Baptist, the, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So it's not, I, I'm, not, mm. I'm not wanting to undermine what Jesus did and said, not at all for a minute. But I think, for, I think this atonement does do this. He points to one or two references as if those are the only ones that talk about atonement. Mark 10:45, he gave his life for ransom for many. But actually, I think the whole thing, you quoted, you know, about the shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. I think, for me, the through and through the Gospels is an atonement message. Oh, yeah, I'm not, I don't think so you're I, disagreeing. With, but it's like, I think the question comes from, Jesus preaches the, gospel, uh, the kingdom, you know, famous Sermon on the Mount. You don't get atonement clearly in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is preaching the kingdom there. How, do I, how does that relate to the gospel? I'm not saying all of Jesus' teaching. No. No, okay. No, but there's not much atonement in the five teaching passages in Matthew. We're going to move on because I think yep. people want their tea. But we have this is going to be the final one. And uh, <laughs> we said it was debating the kingdom. We didn't say we're solving the kingdom. We're just debating the kingdom. And there's another chance to come back tomorrow and um, put Adrian right. Uh, <laughs> notice that little pun. Put him right. No. Um, Okay, thanks for that comment. Anyone, will anyone go home hugely disappointed that I didn't make their point if I shut it down now? It looks like, no. <laughs> Why didn't you do this earlier? No, we're going to be back here tomorrow. So tomorrow we're going to discuss 
Um, another book by Scott McKnight. Adrian's going to be in the hot seat, and he's going to do his presentation. I'm going to violently dis disagree again. Um, but we are, are, are really good friends. Um, so um, we want people, we need to be thinking Christians. We need to go deeper than we are at the moment. That's what we're trying to provoke in this. And Jesus dying for you is the most precious truth. And that other people need to know he died for them and ask him for forgiveness. Nothing of what we've said amongst any of us want to take that away. But that, that it does more and that we are called to, to do more than evangelism but not less than evangelism is very important too. I'm done.